You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Creation of the humanoids. Out of the atomic war came the perfect man, the humanoids, man's own creation. Physically and mentally perfect. Created to serve their masters. Men and women. But could man compete with this creation, the perfect man? You love that that machine? I love Pax. He's dedicated to keeping me happy. And I am happy. The robots are machines. They must be made to look like machines. The perfect man, created by man, becomes man's worst enemy. The most provocative story ever filmed. The most unusual story ever filmed. You must see it to believe it. The creation of the humanoids. The perfect man. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Dan Martin. Hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Jennifer Handorf. Hey there. Sci-Fi December continues with a look at Creation of the Humanoids. Copyrighted 1960, the film was directed by Wesley E. Berry and written by Jay Sims. It plays like a stage play about a post-apocalyptic world in which androids are a large part of society and human beings fear being replaced by them. We will be spoiling this movie as we go along, so if you haven't seen it before, check it out. I think it's in the public domain. You can find it on archive.org, youtube.com, pretty easily. So, Dan, was this a first-time watch for you, or had you seen this one before? I'd seen stills and maybe clips, but I had not watched it all the way through until, uh, I'm going to say, July this year. How about you, Jen? It was a funny one for me because it was one that I thought I had never seen anything from. And then as we were going through it, I realized that I'd seen stills of it in textbooks and this kind of thing. So it's one of those where it was really nice to go back and sort of complete the dotted line that had existed there before. I remember this one being at the Blockbuster where I worked years and years ago. And it was, for whatever reason, I think it was in one of those big cases. And the doctor who we'll talk about, Dr. Raven... Whoever drew him just had Christopher Lloyd in mind because he looked exactly like Doc Brown. And I was like, (laughs) what the heck is this? And it was a fantastic video case. So I ended up watching it that way. And I was kind of flummoxed by this movie. I really enjoy it, but it's not like anything I've really seen before. So I have that. I feel like I'm having a Mandala effect moment now because I feel like having lived at a Blockbusters for you know my my childhood, I feel like I've seen this cover before. Is it is it sort of um very block printed and him looking wild eyed and with crazy hair? Is it is it a bit of an abstract one or is it just an image of him? It is uh, definitely a drawing of him. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. I, think I remember this now. I'll have to Google it when we go off. But yeah. But Dan, did you remember ever seeing that? Because you were quite heavy in the VHS community for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I don't know if this ever got a VHS release in the UK. I mean, you talk about the big box rentals, and that was definitely how I remember video covers. But I don't think I've ever seen any artwork. And the poster that I've seen that is, you know, the one that's on IMDb is obviously a lot more staid than the one you're <laughs> describing. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think they would get more viewers if they were to stick with that Doc Brown poster. It's so Yeah, no, I'm going to have to look that up. Uh, we'll see how the miracle of the internet takes us as we go along. You watched it when you were quite young. I can imagine being slightly sideswiped by this one because it really is quite unique in its style. And it reminds me of before they, I don't know if they do this in the States, but in the UK, if there's like a really big successful West End show, they'll like live broadcast it to cinemas. So you can go and see maybe some opera or or a big musical or, you know, whatever the West End hit of the day is, will will broadcast live into cinemas. But before that, you'd occasionally get VHS copies circling around like the bootleg fairs of big plays. I have downstairs a DVD rip of an old VHS bootleg of Stephen Burkoff directing a very young Tim Roth in uh, a stage production of Metamorphosis, which I saw when I was very young and then tracked down in later life. And so there were these sort of film stage plays kicking around and it feels a lot like one of those. Yeah, sort of almost like pre Quatermass in the Pit and that kind of thing, where where it feels very set designed and staged, but at the same time, like it's not because it's just cheap, but because it's designed to be that way. This film, you read about it online, other people's opinions of it online, it gets knocked a lot for how cheap it is and how sort of proscenium everything is photographed. But I think it adds a lot to it. I mean, we're playing around with the synthesis of reality the duplication of humanity, all this kind of stuff. So the idea that we're doing it on a painted backdrop, against a painted backdrop on a, on a stage, um, sort of adds that that's a nice sort of meta-artifice in the mix. It's amazing to me that just eight years later, something like 2001 A Space Odyssey would come along, because this is the opposite of that. This is, like you are saying, the painted backdrops, the super sci-fi sci-fi music the super sci-fi sound effects to i mean i'm almost expecting the camera to pan over and there'd be somebody with a theremin there one of the things i really love about that is that it isn't a theremin it's a woman singing and i find that so weird (laughs) because the whole thing about the theremin is that like oh it gives this really weird ethereal sound almost like a woman singing and it's not like theremins were hard to get a hold of. It's not like they're expensive or difficult to make. But yet they've chosen on this production just to use a woman singing instead. It's like recreating that theremin tone. Maybe the the composer just knew a lady who sounded like a theremin. Sally with the theremin voice. Yeah. I can get her for $10 a day less than a theremin player. <laughs> A few months ago, we covered a movie called The End of August at the Hotel Ozone, which starts with a whole bunch of countdowns and then nuclear explosions going off. This is somewhat reminiscent of that because you have this real garble of voices up front and then a whole series of explosions over the beginning credits. And then we go into like a documentary about the history of robotics and we get all of these different versions of robots throughout the years. It kind of reminded me of that montage in RoboCop 2 where they're trying to come up with the next version of RoboCop. This first robot was quite ungainly, and its functions were limited. But refinements came in rapid succession, and soon the R-20 was capable of all the thought processes and functions of a man. OCP pioneered sidewalk technology, and now we take a quantum leap forward. State-of-the-art destructive capabilities commanded by a unique combination of software and organic systems. In every way, an improvement over the original. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you RoboCop 2. 
we were just talking about this the other day. We're recording the Arrow podcast episode about RoboCop tonight, uh, so I just watched their remaster of it, and I was uh, I was reminiscing over the uh, the attempts at the next robotic policeman, uh, particularly the one that pulls off his own head. Well, I honestly, it's one of my favorite parts of this entire film is the cardboard robots in the middle, and I want nothing more than to have two or three of those guys in my house. I want them to do my dishes. I want them to raise my children. People couldn't work around them because they were they were uncanny. <laughs> like, you know what? I hate people. So like, bring on the square boxed robot slaves. I don't need them to look humanoid. We can stop it there, and then the process doesn't have to go any further. <laughs> Calm down, you flesh and blooder. Yeah, there's a great line in this opening too, where it's like uh, they had talked and argued for years, and no one was sure who started it. And as I'm hearing that, I'm just like, oh my god, that sounds like Kyle Reese. No one can be sure who started it, and really, that is unimportant. Nobody even knew who started it. It was the machines there. Have you seen uh, Aniara, the Swedish sci-fi picture that came out this year? No, not yet. Aniara starts with a very similar uh, montage of nuclear explosions, desolation, etc., that that feels very reminiscent of the beginning of Creation of the Humanoids, but then it goes one step further because it starts at the end, so to speak. It then has a, the end credit scroll goes a minute into the film after all the explosions and then the movie picks up after that i just got my hands on a copy of that it sounds like i know what i'm watching today oh it's a delight you'll love it it was either that or the irishman i think you just swayed me yeah i, I think i preferred it to the irishman with the nuclear explosions at the beginning of this it feel it really does feel like it's going stuff happened this is where we are now just accept it isn't it quite acceptable that we all believe that, yes, nuclear explosions are at some point going to wipe out the majority of the planet? It's a given. Moving on. It's like, a it's when, just quite not per- Yeah, it's a very perfunctory opening. And I love the way they li- list the statistics. It's the place where they introduce reproduction and birth rates as one of the sort of repeating themes of the film. Because it's children are 1.4 child per couple. It's like, yeah. per union, sorry. It's it's like wow okay so we're slowly diminishing the population. That's after that's after accounting for the reduction of uh, useless mutants. Mutants. That the robots themselves even said robots. I was like, really? <laughs> he is one of the robots. I feel like Futurama has a lot to to thank this movie for. Actually, there's a lot of being drawn on this, and and maybe even maybe that's what we you know. We'll talk about this as we go on. But one of the things that makes it so special is it really wholeheartedly embraces everything it does regardless of taste or or performance it's very, it's very earnest I, yeah, I think that's one of really the things is. i like so much about it is that it, it kind of knows where it's going it knows what it's doing and yeah it knows it doesn't have a lot of money <laughs> it's got a good solid political message at the center of it which is there's been recent arguments on uh, on twitter about whether or not films in the past had political messages in them genre <laughs> films of the past no <laughs> And actually, some aspects of it are very, very good. The makeup effects are done by Jack Pierce, who's uh, who's like a sort of a, a god in the history of makeup effects. And the contact lenses are some of the best I've ever seen in film. So yeah, the opening credits of this are quite like you know spattered with with interesting contributors. Yeah, I think that when you find out towards the end, to jump ahead a little bit, that Doctor Raven was in old age makeup when you first met him. And you go, oh my god, okay, well, Jack Pierce is amazing, obviously, but that was that was really deft when he comes back younger, uh, and you realise that he was in old age makeup for all of his early scenes. 
Yeah, I actually bought that he was an old man. Yeah, yeah, I completely bought into it. And that's it. Like the, some of the you see a couple of ball cap edges every now and then, but some aspects of it are really technically adept. And it leads me to think that a lot of the weirder aspects are stylistic rather than just cheap. One of my favorite responses to that is in looking at, you know, interviews and this kind of stuff that were done at the time, because the the special effects uh, designer did do a lot of PR for the film when it opened. And they said that one of the reasons they went for bald caps rather than shaving the actors' heads uh, was because they just didn't feel like it was fair to ask these actors to shave their heads for a couple of days for a really cheap independent film. And there's a lot of that that I want to go back to as we go through that I just find fascinating about why this film even happened and yet turned out so, so very striking. I really, really like the aesthetic. And some of the acting is, I'd say, dated rather than wooden. Would you say robotic? A little robotic, yeah, particularly from maybe a couple of the leads. <laughs> but maybe that's deliberate. That's what I was wondering, too, if it was deliberate. Because there are times where I'm just like, that. I mean, especially the Craigus, his sister, she sounds so robotic. But then when you learn later that she's actually being hypnotized in her sleep basically that in order to love her partner more her robotic partner that she is uh what's the word she's in rapport with rapport with yeah yeah and it's like okay well maybe that is on purpose maybe she's not just a bad actress he can't leave without your permission affirmative you mean no i mean no negative n-o i won't have it there's an often thing where when you're talking to an, a director or an editor or you know anyone who's who's making a decision that that a test audience doesn't get they sometimes they'll get annoyed at the audience and it's like but you're not going to be there to explain it to the audience you know it has to read without the audience because if the audience just makes an assumption they just go oh well that person's just a bad actor then you've kind of made a bad choice as a director because they're not getting it and there's a few of these films where i give the you know the film a lot of the benefit of the doubt because i think they were actually doing something that maybe isn't superficially obvious there was a film a couple of years ago by the getty kid called uh, the evil within uh which got a lot of stick because the lead character had mental disabilities and was played by an able-bodied actor although that kind of had to be the case because when you went into his like internal monologue and brainscape he was as he was before this narrative accident that had left him that way. And all of the stuff in the real world is very wooden and flat and TV dramery. And all the stuff in his like inner world, his psychological inner world, is, is actually quite lush and well-produced. And I've often felt that it's because they want to show that this guy isn't Im- connecting emotionally with other people, that he doesn't understand why they're saying the things they're saying. And so the director chose to have these people perform in a very wooden way. And creatively, we see here why it's so difficult a choice, because it's a, it's the equivalent of having a character who's a, a terrible comic tell jokes in a film. The audience still has to sit through terrible jokes. Bad songs are the same. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a hard one to decipher. And then it's easy to forgive something that is just not hitting the mark by reading into it as potential artistry. This one really weirds me out. Again, go back to its crew structure. Yeah, I don't know. What did you think, Mike? It's just so striking the way that this thing is put together, and it's tough for me to even sometimes get my head around it, because, yeah, it is very much... You can't say it's a film stage play, because there are a lot of close-ups. We've got shot... Well, not necessarily shot reverse shot, but some something close to that. So it, it feels like they're... Tr- 
trying to do things and I'm not exactly sure, is this working or is this done wrong on purpose? Exactly. There's a lot of very failing up. It's a film that fails up, I think. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm going to go with that as my as my thesis now. I, lo- I just like how colourful it is. It's just pretty. <laughs> it is yeah, super pretty. The, the amazing contact lenses and the hanging neon lights in, like, circular neon lights in Dr. Raven's lab. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I want to go to a bar that's themed on, on the design of this film. Although it, it also... It does also feel very like uh, Russian and sort of post-communist and very stark and blocky. The painted backdrops are sort of like a Technicolor German expressionist. Set. Yeah, it can't help but feel kind of slightly Central Eastern European because of that very sort of like proscenia setup. Yeah, the color on the actors themselves. I mean, everybody looks very healthy, and I like that you can really see that silverish green makeup on the the robots so well, and those silver eyes. Yeah, to your point, are super striking. It's funny with them as well because there's this effect of never quite knowing where they're looking. You can occasionally catch their pupil or the or the shape of the eye, so you can tell they're looking in a certain direction. But the way that the stage lighting is hung, it does have this effect of, of giving illusions that, you know, those eyes that sort of follow you about the room kind of a thing. So there are only, I was counting last night, not counting the opening and the uh, kind of documentary talking about all the different versions of these robots, I think there's only like seven scenes, seven setups. There's only one where we're in a particular scene and then we cut away to something else that's happening and then we go right back to it. So it just has this real, okay, we are doing this scene now and now we're moving to this area. And as far as action in this movie, there's very, very little action. This is all tell, don't show. Yeah, yeah, except for the bit where Kragus punches out Pax's contact lenses. <laughs> and then and then they do a sort of like a low-budget proto-T2 arm split robotic reveal. It's another reason why I find this film baffling, because it, it wasn't made as a money spinner. You look at the people who invested in it, and one of them is the writer, sorry, is the director-producer. One of them is a composer who used to work with the writer-producer, sorry, director-producer, but hadn't done so uh, for for years. And it's the director-producer's own company. Yes, it went into theaters. Yes, it went on to television. So there, yeah, it had a short theatrical release. But um, and, and it did okay. But it's not made from a book. It's somebody went out there and said, this is what we want to make. And then, you know, I know we're going to talk about the writer later, but then you go to the writer and it's not as though he's the first person you'd pick for something like this. So it's baffling to me why all these people came stroke out of retirement. It was the director's last film, this, that, and the other to do this, but they clearly really wanted to. Well, I mean, I think if you look at the political message in it, it's obviously something that it's, if you have an opinion at all and who doesn't, then it's something that you're going to have a very strong opinion about. It was made in 1960, which is the beginning of the civil rights movement starting. The movie is so obviously almost like bluntly a metaphor for well, solidly rights. in the first act and then it really sort of drifts off in other places about reproduction and this kind of thing but yes no, no i think that's all about if you think about what all the old writers nowadays are going on about like pure european blood and all that kind of stuff 
that's the, the procreation is inter the, the 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 rapport is mixed race relationships the the guys are dressed like confederate soldiers clickers when said in their accents sounds Ooh, a lot like the n-words yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like what, what what yeah i mean it's so incredibly obviously about race relations in america yes and as we go through it i will point out the things that make me go wait why did they go weird there but yeah i'll, I'll tell you what i'm talking about as we go through a few years ago, I wanted to track down this series of books because on IMDb, and believe it or not, IMDb is occasionally incorrect. Mm-hmm. On IMDb, I know, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that. Uh, on IMDb, it says that this was based on a novel by Jack Williamson. So I went out and sure enough, he has two books, The Humanoids and With Folded Hands. And I read through those. They have nothing to do with this movie. So I just wanted to put that out there that there was nothing. I mean, other than that there are robots, that's it. Like the robots that are created in Williamson's work, they have this really super strong directive of making people happy. So all they do is basically enslave the human race and try to make them happy. And that's touched on a little bit with the rule number one here, which obviously is an Asimov reference in the movie, but that's it. We have robots in one and robots in in another. We have the word humanoids. You can forget the rest. It gave us pause as well. And and we went back and and we wanted to look how had Asimov's uh, rules, laws of of robotics fit into this in the narrative. And it's interesting because it is still relatively new, I would say. Like the book was published something like 20 years or, or 30 years before this came out. That's still relatively new science and relatively even new science fiction if you don't accept it as science. And it's interesting to see it so heartily lent upon in a film as early as this. Yeah, as you say, it's interesting that it should take the title of something that was so recently in its own culture released. It's a funny, it's a funny little synthesis. It's this like, film, um, it's like Boris Vian's "I Spit on Your Grave," the French novella, uh, and then having its name stolen for the uh, well, Mi- I spit on Mia's your grave. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to remember the name of the the director of the the exploitation picture. Yeah, Mia's Archie's. I spit on your grave has nothing to do with it. There, there is, I think, there is actually a fifties adaptation of the Vian book, I, but I can't we, find it. We say all this. I did make a film called The Borderlands, which is the least unique title. Of like, yeah, no, it's no not even Googleable. Yeah, so it's it, it's funny how that happens, but it's also you know, is it the zeitgeist? Did they both get inspired by the same thing? Did they accidentally nick it off each other? But you're right, it's. It would be at best a stretch and at worst entirely uh, false to suggest that it's based on the book. So when you get to the story, I mean, the story boiling it down, I mean, we've got just a handful of characters and it is, I would say our main character is Captain Kenneth Kragus, who has dropped his first name years ago and just goes by the Kragus because he is the last in his line and he's played by Don McGowan. And he is a member of this order of flesh and blood, which, yeah, you mentioned that they dress like uh, Confederate soldiers. When his sister makes fun of him for being in this order, she talks about the funny costumes and rituals that they go through. So, of course, we're thinking about the clan. There is this aspect of race relations that just goes through this whole thing as far as 
here we are. We're talking about robots being the underclass versus the humans, and he's afraid. I mean, I, I very purposefully in the uh, intro used the line "replace us" because of that those horrible people down in uh, Charlottesville who were screaming out, "You will not replace us." At the end of the day, that's kind of what the robots are doing. They are doing what Kragus is really afraid of, but they're doing it again for our own good. And there is a real heady debate later on in the film as far as if you take a human's thalamus and put it in to a robot body, does that mean that the soul goes with it? And we go back and forth about talking about souls for the last of these seven major scenes the conversation they have uh if you cut a man's leg off is his soul diminished is such a fantastic bit of writing (laughs) that is sort of the bits that make this film stand out i think is that there's these very earnest moments where it just very plainly speaks these truths that feel and maybe because they're coming from a film that otherwise feels in very many ways camp or lower budget, they feel so much truer. Yeah, it's just actually pretty well written. Like the Kragus, his name is a is a sort of Kaiser Soze esque flag for the What's that for the audience. So Kragus is the Lycian name for Zeus, but in Lycian mythology, he is humanized, so he gives up his god status to become human. And so you've got the opposite happening with Kragus's character here, where he gives up his hum- human status and becomes immortal. Well, and then you've got his sister's robot Pax, who's just, you know, peace in, in Latin in many ways, or several languages. Also the name of the makeup that they were probably using <laughs> to cover the, the silver That's my favourite. We'll call this one Pax. This one shall be Maybelline. Actually, you know what? I think this might be uh, this might be a few years before Pax was invented. But Pax is a prosade acrylic mix that's used as a heavy makeup color in special effects. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, any time a character introduces themselves as the Cronus, obviously there's the element of him being the last of his line. But the the ego and the human ego is is very heavily depicted here, and it's it yeah it, it well with the talking about the Confederate uniforms as well. There is genuinely a part of me that wonders if that's in the script or if they went to the costume hire company who had like some leftover suits from background from Gone with the Wind, and they're like, yeah, those are two quid a week. We'll take them because it it's so much of this feels. It, it it sort of it makes a point, but it also feels very hodgepodge. But it's so intrinsic; it would be ridiculous for that to be luck, surely. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It just it just the budget of it all just really it it just makes me delight in either happy accidents or either here's here's what it is either they came up with these brilliant ideas and were really lucky that they could afford how to execute them exactly. Or they came up with really rough ideas and were lucky that the things available to them that they could afford worked out so well. It's got to be one or the other. Because they didn't spend money on this, is the basic point. (laughs) I think they spent money. They just spent all the money they had. £12. (laughs) Yeah, which wasn't a huge amount of money. I love when we are introduced to the three let's call them the main robots where they pretty much just stay in the same set for most of the movie. And as I'm watching this, I'm just like, wow, that guy's voice is so familiar and I can't figure it out. And then finally I looked him up and he's from plan nine from outer space. He's the guy with the immortal line. You see, you see your stupid minds, stupid, stupid. 
Yeah, it's what's his name, Manlove, isn't it? Best last name ever for someone who plays an alien. Yeah, he's a uh, Dudley. <laughs> or an alien Dud- in Dudley Manlove. Yeah. Dudley Manlove, the, the robot alien we all love. I think he was a radio DJ, and that's why he's got that awesome voice. It's They basically decided they like putting a load of makeup on him and having him be very stoic, but his voice was super cool. And apparently he works for cheap. Again, yeah, I keep going yeah, back to you, this. You're, like, you're not getting expensive people if you're booking people who are working with... Uh, well, this is what I mean as well, is that this is this is something that fascinates me, is there must be this community of people making these incredibly low-budget films. And there's almost... I'm just so fascinated by what that story must have been. The behind-the-scenes on this makes my heartstrings pull. Uh, are either of you aware of a, an American filmmaker still working called uh, Dave the Rock Nelson? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, so Dave Rock Nelson has made it his career to try and hire old Edward alums, uh, mostly Conrad Brooks. Oh yeah, Conrad Brooks will work for cheap. Conrad <laughs> Brooks versus the werewolf. I was also reminded a little bit of uh, the gun debate too, because at one point they introduced this uh, robot to uh, the the Kragus, and Kragus notices that he's got a fake identity card, and then they talk later on that this guy basically doesn't have a serial number. So I was just like, oh, okay, it's like an untraceable robot, which really reminded me of the whole gun debate and and just how easy it is to get a gun. Here, it's very easy for them to get this untraceable robot. In 1960s America, were they like tracking guns to owners? What oh, hell no, I can't. No, <laughs> no, no, they were handing them out at the supermarket. You, yeah, um, you get a free gun with a double I really, mattress. I really genuinely feel like that's when they were still selling children like fairly high powered rifles. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, sir, if you buy an extra three magazines, you get this two-two pistol for your son. <laughs> Come on in, Jimmy. Open up a savings account, and we'll give you a free rifle. I hear exactly what you're saying there. I found it interesting with the currency, and it's interesting the idea that currency is tracked in the same way as the weapons, or as the tools, or as the anything else and they say as well there's a bit of a there is a bit of a communist thing in here because the robots don't need money um but they're also not allowed to have money which goes back to the civil rights yeah the only time that yeah they they're they're less than human they're not allowed money there's a lot of parallels with the civil rights i mean they say we have no desire for money Mm. but then they say that in a scene where they are giving someone money for goods and they're and it's illegal (laughs) for for them to be carrying money so they obviously they obviously want money (laughs) <laughs> they, obviously, they obviously need it because they're using it for their plan. Yeah, and when they meet Doctor Raven, I mean, one of the first things that first things that comes out of his mouth is, "All you clickers look the same to me." And I was like, "Okay." Feels like Grandma at Thanksgiving, right? It's like, <laughs> oh God, Grandma, how clever are they? Are they being so clever as to find a word that really does click that way? And they must be because it feels so heavily intentional. Yeah. But then, why does the film? feel so stilted in so many other places it's these peaks and troughs of incredible quality and strange choices i like the strange choices and i think that it's they've done the things that they can do well very well and then they've kind of bridged the gaps as best they can (laughs) heavy heavy coats of of glossy contacts spackle there's also a danger with the robots that they're gaining religion and i found that interesting too that the humans are afraid of their new religion and that's interesting because in if you think about what was going on in the 60s, you've got Cold War stuff, religion, America was becoming more heavily religious at the time. 
Uh, it was either around that time or very shortly after the time that In God We Trust was added to both the Pledge of Allegiance and uh, and the money in America, whereas it hadn't been there before. And that was because communist, like Eastern Europe's and the USSR's anti-religious stance was seen as a thing to be fought back against. And so one of the ways to fight back against the Red Menace was to be religious because because they didn't like that. And they're also very afraid that the religion of the robots is such that they go in and they can learn everything that all of the other robots know. So it's this whole knowledge is power kind of thing. Whereas the humans, they don't have that, what they call the mother father. They don't have the mother father to go back to and gain all that knowledge. So it's, it's really, it's knowledge is power. Knowledge is scaring the humans. And then also the robots say the more we become like humans, the more that they hate us. Again, as as allegory for for civil rights, one of the first like tools of subjugation is a deprivation of of information of education. An aggressive right wing junta will force the working class out away from from education and educational systems because it's much easier to control an ill informed population. And so that's why the the humans are so scared about the the robots just having this amazing hive mind. They say, so you mean within a year, every single robot will have all human knowledge? You know, well, they're also, basically scared of the internet. Well, but then conversely as well, we find <laughs> we find it's only made of tubes, which we see people in later. Um, we see the doctor says um, that he doesn't want to give them the secret to the surgery or the, the operation or the mechanics or whatever you want to call it, the upgrade. Because then he won't be necessary the to them. The thalamic transplant. So it's it's interesting that the human still withholds control of their ultimate power. Like there's still this sort of subtle checks and balances where they could never do this completely on their own. Well, that's it. He he has deliberately not registered the the technique. There you go. Because He's not copywritten he, the technology. He, basically. Well, he hasn't put it up into the computers, so the robots are unable to learn it. Yeah, it's not in the cloud. So they, they yeah, exactly. So the robots know how to do the hypothalamic full. transplant. It's just because his drive is full. He doesn't have these highfalutin values. But what they don't know how to do is the what he calls the bridging, which is erasing that little moment of memory, so that they, when they come back to life, they don't remember their own death, because that's what kills them. That's what makes it fail. And so the bit he's kept secret is how to erase the memory of death. And then once he's reincarnated as his younger self, he's like, well, okay, well, you know, I'm one of you now, so you can have, have the info. That's kind of tricky, the way that he says that he remembers it from his dead body because he wanted to remember it. And in one great leap, he was free. Well, no, because everyone everyone remembers everything. Oh, I, I, yeah. he, he said he'd sort of inured himself to the, like he was he prepared for it. it. Well, in exactly the same way that he's able to like, and, and granted it's a little rough around the edges, but he's, <laughs> he's like, oh no, I can tell Kragus and what's a chops that they're robots. They won't go mad and die because I'm really good at it. And his big plan is, I stab you. You're a robot. But this is what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, look at it. You're bleeding, not blood. Ha ha. You've, you've, you've got um, to do a uh, violence a tricky, is always the solution. You've got to do a tricky surgical maneuver. I call shanking. He's like, but he does this like jazz hands first, which is really like ah, huh? huh? stabbed you. Um, but the the other side of that as well is his implication that he 
is somehow better than them, even though he is still this living, you know, he's still a robot, but he has this information that they don't have. And except now that he's one of them, he's happy for it. So it's still that sort of brainwashing implication that goes around in circles a little bit. Well, it's like the Sneetches, you know, if he looks human, he's better than they are. And then they've got the silver eyes and the silver head. So obviously they're inferior. Exactly. Yeah, there's still, it's this inevitable, oh, we're all going to wind up being terrible well, anyway. They're, they're 96s, aren't they? The, the ones that look like human. It's all done by levels. So the that sort of, like, Day the Earth Stood Still looking thing <laughs> in He's the like credits. Two. And then for some reason, the made out of cardboard boxes advancement, which is like a five. And then Noodle Fingers, who's like a look, ten. Look, we've all seen the Tesla truck. Sometimes things go retro. I like the Tesla truck. <laughs> I'll see you in the Thunderdome. <laughs> Yeah, so like, you know, they're, they're graded and, and there are sort of points allocated for the, the replication of humanity and 100 is a perfect replica of a, of a human. Right, where they can replicate themselves now. Exactly, and there is there is something, that is one of the places where I think it does slightly branch from civil rights into more, what is it that makes us human? And of course, if we talked about today saying that, well, what makes us human is the ability to reproduce, there'd be a lot of political, rightly so, backlash against that, obviously, because... The well, Theresa May was victim of that in the last political Yeah, the, the, the idea that people who don't have children are in some way lesser, or that if you don't have 1.4 children that you're not upholding society, uh, or that if you have a monster child you should definitely well, crush them with a rock. You say it, there'd definitely be a political backlash. Like, her opponent, and I can't remember her name, in the party candidacy in the... in. For, for the Tory party a few years ago said I'd be a good prime minister because I'm a mother and Theresa May and her PR lot jumped on this and were like how fucking dare you <laughs> Theresa May can't have children that was a pointed that was a pointed attack and you're a absolute and she fell out of the running and Theresa May was a shoe in well this that. is one of the things I mean is that like as as all these places it's really brilliant really right on and really forward thinking and on and a great metaphor and all these other things it does come out in these places where it blatantly says what makes you human is the ability to reproduce. And I don't even think the filmmakers feel that way. Like, I don't think they're pushing that point home. I don't think that's the, the banner they're standing under. I think it just happens to be the point that the film is making in a lot of ways. Just to mention it again, Aniara, the Swedish sci-fi, deals with a lot of what it makes, <laughs> what it means to be human. It's an, it? it's an amazing parallel to this. And it's similar. Interestingly, it's a sci-fi for which they built no sets. It's entirely uh, shot in lo on locations that look a bit sci-fi with like a few digital screens thrown in and a few digital spaceship exteriors thrown in. But that deals a lot with, with what it means to be human and comes to a very different conclusion to this. Well, this movie is very backwards when it comes to the treatment of women. And just, oh you were talking about the value placed upon reproduction. And the one woman who was uh, made into a robot, a perfect copy, other than that she used to be plump. And so they uh, they wanted to make her a lot thinner. And she thanks them. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you, she says. Yeah, no, no, she was made, she was a, 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 it's a perfecter copy, even. And, and I will say, so we, we talked earlier about things that seem unusual and then become commented on. Like, there's absolutely no reason for them to mention that, except for in the earlier scenes, when I look at her, I go, damn, she got a thin waist. 
And it's so funny that they then comment on it later. Don't worry, the reason she's got such a thin waist, we realize it's inhuman. It's because she used to be plump, and so now we've made her best. Do you not think it's part of the explanation about the fact that, like, and granted, it's a little blinkered and old-fashioned and... and uh, dated, sizest, yeah, but but in the same way that Doctor Raven is his younger self, younger, less lemony snicket looking self. <laughs> it's just again reinforcing for the audience. Oh, you know, when you come back as a robot, you get to be the version of you that you want to be. Well, but she didn't choose that, and he did. So there's still some. I mean, yeah, like it might be referencing things, but yeah, she obviously, didn't as it. I said, it's a little clunky, and they are taking away her agency in that. But the point they are making is that. It's an improvement to be a robot in every possible way. You're younger, you're thinner. I just really wish that when her robot self went over to, to Craigus's sister, she'd been like popping chocolates left, right, and center in a sort of like living her best life kind of like. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I don't, I don't seem to digest food. It just. I like that they. She... All her clothes didn't fit. Yeah. That's the best. And, she, and, and that's what she says thank you for as well. That's the line after which she's. They're like, oh yeah, none of my clothes fit. Thanks. All of, all, all of my backup uh, goal clothes suddenly fit. <laughs> <laughs> we all have goal clothes. She's a. She's kind of a like a throwaway ninety six as well. They're a bit disappointed in her because they're like, yeah, her, she's not managed to get herself in anywhere. We're not getting any useful information from her. She's pretty lowly at this news station where she's working because well, Craigus is basically an unknowing double agent yeah, or an un- unknowing spy, and he comes back and reports. In fact, when Doctor Raven's lab gets attacked. When they get Craigus in the tube for his, like, checking out what's gone down, they're like, why didn't you warn us about the attack? And he's like, the attack was a sanctioned late last night. I hadn't had a chance to upload any information before then. Well, before we move on from our female R96, I want to talk, I do want to talk about how, like, absolutely smashingly she's designed because she looks like the catalog drawings of models from that era. Yeah. She looks spectacular. Even when we get to Craigus's sister, Never before, I thought her dress was made from drapes. It looks like it could have been from Gone with the Wind. It was, it was this, you know, this heavy, fluttery green, casky nonsense. It's so weird the way that the women in this are dressed, like they're they're on a catwalk all the time. It's amazing, though. It's another one of those bits. And there aren't any female non like lower than ninety sixes, are there? Like all of the other humanoids are male. She's the first indication that there's like a gendered society within the robots. I just really like the idea that that they're all women and we're just <laughs> just because they don't have hair, we're being really like and, and because they're played by men. Well, and to be fair, they can't they can't you know reproduce, so they're not really either. But I do like the idea that we're just throwing shade shade on body types now. I, I feel like a 1960 version of the future would probably prioritize male robots. Well, you talked about how Maxine doesn't have any agency, and the sister doesn't have any agency either, when we find out that it was through Morpheal's suggestion that she and Pax were in rapport. It's not up to her that there's this miscegenation between humans and robots. It is, it's her, maybe she had an inkling, but they are really enforcing that through hypnotizing her in her sleep. Is the implication that all of the because we get a statistic about the number of uh, applications for rapport that have been put in? Are we to it's believe a huge that of all of them, yeah. all of them are uh, because of this hypnosis, or or is it just that this was a particular like union that was useful to the robots? No, 
granted, force this one. I've been watching a lot of Star Trek Next Gen, but let me tell you how I think this has gone down. <laughs> it <laughs> does some bullshit. It does actually feel like one of those bigger stories, like a bit like uh, the Invitation or something, where maybe she wasn't wearing the, you know, maybe both of those women weren't wearing these really refined Type A clothing before they became brainwashed by the robot overlords, as it were. Like, we, we only see them after they've become really impacted. One, because our, our 96 female is a robot, and two, uh, because uh, the the Kregos's sister is- Esme. Form, as Esme, thank you, is being um, brainwashed. So were they like this before? Were they more independent women before? Or were they- I think- I understood that it was only sterile women were allowed to go into rapport because we have that whole conversation where Kragus, who thinks that uh, female 96 is of a fertile woman, is bemoaning the fact that he wouldn't be allowed to marry her because she's a fertile female. And he, as a kid, played on the radiation dumps or the war zone, and so he's firing blanks. So now he's not allowed to, to marry a... A, a fertile woman because he'd be costing the human race uh, a potential, you know... 1.4 children. 1.4 children, exactly. Um, and so if that's the law there, then presumably a fertile woman would not be granted a license to get together with a robot with whom she cannot procreate. Procreate with a robot. R the robot. <laughs> it's funny because it does feel like a complete world, but obviously there's huge portions of it that are just not remotely taken into account. Well, but also, I get the. I would if you told me that that at this point in this world there were like two hundred humans left. I'd buy that. That seems like a realistic number for this world. I don't know, no, 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 because then they would have noticed seven new guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, then a thousand. <laughs> Is that? You oh no no! But it's not seven new guys because it's, it's seven people who died, yeah. and then they get in there before the bodies are discovered. So it's Bill, not new guys. That, I thought you died in a thrasher <laughs> yesterday. Have you seen Bill? Oh, he got crushed under a rock. No, wait, there he is. <laughs> yeah, when they reveal that Kragus is actually a terrorist and he killed Maxine accidentally, and then he has to apologize for killing her. That's like, what that's that, whoa. He's like, how does one? It's like, what is? Yeah, what is the Miss Manners guide for apologizing to someone? Is there a card for that? <laughs> does Hallmark cover this? Yeah, Hallmark, this, like, Hallmark are opportunistic fucks. The there's de there's definitely a card for that. Um, dear Secretary, sorry I blew you up in a transgressive explosion. It's, it's part of the new range, along with I'm sorry I cheated on you in a dream. <laughs> I was a video game character. My buddy was a video game character. <laughs> I'm really sorry, but I had sex with Ryu. <laughs> It has these peaks and troughs again, though, where sometimes it's absolutely bonkers, stilted and protracted and just clunky, clunky, clunky. And then all of a sudden it's, how do you apologize to someone that you've exploded? Like, it's outstandingly deep in places. Maybe that's why she's thinner. Maybe they couldn't find all of her. <laughs> no! <laughs> no, I just like the idea that the robots are like, your BMI was a bit... Uh, like how help because he says a bit plump is he just being polite maybe that whole maybe that whole leg conversation is a is a throwback to her situation we had to you'll notice your your right leg doesn't have a lot of bones in it oh, <laughs> it's mostly okay. stomach then this is again where i mean it's really weirdly balanced because it's the robots the robot says you were a, you had a tendency to be a bit plump now that's not unhealthy. He's not said she was had a obesity issue. You were he said she obese. was a bit plump. So is he saving her feelings by only telling her she was a bit plump, keeping it on the down low? Or 
you know and so when she says thank you she's like no for real i hadn't no i thought my clothes fit better do you not think it's like look if we're gonna have copies of humans going out as unwilling unknowing spies into jobs of import so that they can report back and tell us you know, the goings-on of the flesh and blood council etc etc she got the job at the tv station oh, oh no she died at the tv station yeah, didn't yeah, she I, mean, I was thinking maybe they tried to make her hotter so that like in a 1960s brain, she get promoted faster. Yeah. Did Kragus get his teeth fixed? Like, is it always there's always these little cosmetol, uh, you know, cosmo, uh, cosmetic uh, improvements? As they well? deterrorized him. Yeah, they made him. They made him ever so slightly less uh, transgressive. Yeah. And it seems like that runs in their family because they're talking about how their dad was always needed to be up in arms about things. I love when he comes in and he's basically trying to shame her for being in rapport with the, the with Pax, and he's like, "Are you doing it out of spite? What have I done to earn your hatred? You could be an artist, a musician, even a poet to express yourself some other way." And again, when a film is, you know, films are obviously made by a creative. So whenever you see these lines in a film, it's like a, it's always got to be tongue in cheek in some way. So is this what they're saying they think of other creatives, or is this how they feel creatives are viewed in the world? It's definitely how they feel creatives are viewed. They're doing that thing where someone says your argument back to you in a stupid voice because they haven't got a better <laughs> argument. Me, 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 me. Maybe a poet. So they're being like staunch militaristic right wing anti like social reform people being like you can't oh poets are bullshit (laughs) (laughs) maybe go do a painting with your friend bob ross i like segregation and paintings are bullshit it's a funny little relationship there is as well because there is and maybe this is just me but there does feel like there's a bit of an oedipal vibe between the two of them as well like he's you know a lot of the films in which we see racist white men be protective of their sisters it is in the same areas where we hear banjos playing and cousins loving cousins but um so there's always a bit of that whenever men are hyper protective of who their women are sleeping with there's always that bit of sort of psychosexual stuff going on but yeah i love that he just totally goes he's like you know it seems like a sensible choice stabbing open this robot's arm you know what i've never done in an argument is stab open someone's television well they they make a point about the only crime that can be committed against a, a robot is vandalism and you said when we were watching it again the other day what about theft and i was like well but that's not against the robot that's against the robot's owner and again that puts them in a place of being property really objectifying yeah, yeah being solidly objectifying so yeah he's going in there and he's like look he doesn't even have flesh or blood <laughs> that's where we get our name by objecting <laughs> to that kind of thing that's a whole deal i do like when pax puts back in his human eye contacts that he never blinks and that's a really nice effect that's it though but there are so many of those nice little touches well and with the contacts i do slightly wonder if they could blink Oh, no, 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 when he's not wearing his robot contacts. Right, when he's got real eyes. Human contacts, so he's got human eyes, and then he doesn't blink. No, you're absolutely right. The blinking and not blinking... Because the robots don't blink, though, do they? I I don't... I don't think they blink. I didn't watch specifically, but I can't think. There weren't any blinks that stayed with me. There was no intuitive emotive blinks, that's... I don't think that they can, nor do I think that they can actually see out of those contact lenses, because when they go to lift the tube on Kragus later, he's like fumbling for the controls. 
there's a lot of sort of like reaching for the for the the light switch kind of grasping sort of textures going on as well. And it's it's okay. The ones who can see out of the contacts are level 101. So that's that's going to come down the line. What the reason I love the contact lenses so much is that they look like clear spheres with a lens inside them. They look like what happens when you put a small camera inside a, a clear hemisphere. So just absolutely spot on design. And they would have been glass. <laughs> Like those are, those no, are, I think they are plastic. I think it's written in the information that they're plastic. In the information? On, Wiki- on Wikipedia. Wikipedia. <laughs> Regardless, they would have been really painful at that time. Regardless, that'd be hard. Some of the arguments that Krakus has against the robots are really interesting to me. This whole idea of them basically killing humans with kindness and having them atrophy. They're spoiling us into tra- atrophy, yeah. It reminds me of that IBM film from years ago about machines do the work and people do the thinking. Machines should do the work. That's what they're best at. People should do the thinking. That's what they're best at. Machines should work. People should think. Machines should work. People should think. Machines should work. People should think. And that's what he's super afraid of is just that Again, that they're going to be replaced by these robots, that they'll be almost treated too well, and they won't have the intellectual uh, challenge that they once did. It's interesting. His argument against that is very much like the argument you hear nowadays against universal basic income. (laughs) He's saying, you know, if people don't have to do stuff, if you don't have to work to earn a living, then no one's going to do anything. And then when we need to do stuff, we won't be able to. They're spoiling us into atrophy. (laughs) There's something as well about the fact that this is where I think we lose the nuclear war kind of aspect of it, because we seem to sort of forget that the reason we have the robots is not because we're lazy, but because of all the radiation that's out there. And it's sort of like... Uh, well, because there's not enough of us. We need stuff doing. Well, this is the thing. So so it feels kind of counter to where it's... it's it's Again, it's one of these places where I feel like it suddenly zags. And it's like, well, okay, but that doesn't really make sense with the rest of your argument that robots are making us lazy. And they do state it very clearly as being one of their points. But it doesn't seem to go into the technological advancements of why they have he robots. Does, he does say robots by their nature should be specialised. So that yeah, so, well no, that's so that they don't get too clever and, and jealous of us, isn't it? Well, so they don't take us over, so they don't replace us. So he wants to go back to the non-humanoid versions that just do one thing very well, and then humans are kind of happy to sit there as the the fleshy kings on the metal mountain without fear of being usurped. At that time, the scleral lenses were made of hard plastic. Oh, if you are Jen's, to believe Jen's pulled the up Wikipedia. Wikipedia, when has the internet ever lied to us? The the robots at Wikipedia. Wikipedia, aka mother father. Yeah, mother father. <laughs> But yeah, no, it, it does. It's, it feels like you're, you're absolutely right. But I also think that it does slightly conflict the idea of becoming complacent at needing robots because we need them for radiation. We already need them. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not like now. Like, I mean, I ordered delivery way too much and <laughs> like way too many Ubers. And that is me becoming complacent because of technology. But I feel like if, it, if I didn't go out to pick up my McDonald's because there was radiation outside, then it would be slightly different. I like the bit where she's like, Pax, tell me a joke, <laughs> which is very much like, uh, I think she actually says, Pax, say something funny. Which is like someone saying to Alexa, tell me a joke, except Alexa is designed to tell you a joke, albeit a shitty one from a list of like 10. Whereas he's like, I'm not good at, I'm not good something at Something I'm not good at improvisation. Yeah. yeah, I'm not good at being original or something. I don't know. You put me on the spot. And then later, and that's a, but that's a setup for their like, and this is a lovely thing when you rewatch it. 
he's laughing after Kragus leaves. Oh, wow, and, yeah. Uh, and she says, what's funny? And he says, I am programmed not to cause offence. And she's like, well, I'm a bit offended you're laughing without telling me what you're laughing about. And he says, explanation would offend more. And what he's, because he's la- he says he's laughing at irony. And obviously the irony is that Kragus is so anti-robot. And, but is and, also a robot. Yeah, that's... Pax knows he's a robot. That's one of the most sinister point of, points of the film. And I do think that's another one that pass, uh, that refers to a sort of mass invasion. The implication that this is actually a small story to where this is happening in a wider context. More than Jack Williamson, this story really owes a lot to Philip K. Dick because as we get this reveal that yes, he's a robot, he is a robot that hates robots. Of course, I'm thinking of Decker. I'm thinking of all of these characters from Philip K. Dick world where you find out that you're a robot. And I like this reveal too that we, the audience, find out that he's a robot before he finds out about it. So it's, I mean, it's very, very quickly thereafter that he finds out about it, but we get that knowledge first and then he gets it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. It's a really ha, good ha, film. Ha, dramatic irony. Ha, ha, ha. Ir- irony, the greatest of all of the humors. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting as well, though, because the writers wrote that they think irony is the greatest of all drama. The, writer, the writers wrote that they think that robots would think that irony was the and greatest then they, of all And then of they the use humor. this massive ironic turn. So there is, there's this very meta bit. And, and again, going back to the fact that these writers are not necessarily, you know, winning Oscars before or after this, it's really interesting the way all these little characteristics are implanted into the story. I don't know if either of you noticed, but they all go on to do a great deal of television after this. By the other actors? Well, no, 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 the creatives. Oh. Uh, everybody in it does a great deal of television before and after. And it's um, uh, producer, writer, director, la la la. And it's interesting to me because that is very much something that people with technical skill often do, but who either aren't supported or lack the creative side of it to to work more on unique uh, singular projects rather than chains of television well, series. With a, an established look and a showrunner. And exactly. So, so that this is so unique and then they were never really given that opportunity again is is brilliant. Yeah, we get it. Films better than TV. Jay Sims, the guy who wrote this, you're right, he went on to work on a ton of TV, but he is the man who gave us the Killer Shrews and the giant Gila monster. So let's pay a little bit of uh, respect to this guy. Absolutely amazing. And I, I have a lovely I have a lovely double edition with both of those films on one disc. Very nice. It's the Jay Sims double feature. Fantastic stuff. And then he would also write the story of Panic in the Year Zero, which, am I remembering right that that's uh, Ray Milland when he directed did Ray Milan direct Panic in the Year Zero? Yeah. I've been on a bit of a Ray Milan kick recently. We did um, a Yellow Pajama Girl case oh, wow. um, yeah. a little while ago, which is obviously Milan at the end of his career. And we went back and watched a load of early stuff. He's Oh, God, he was good. I think that was like the second from the last thing that he ever directed. Again, he directed a lot of TV. Yeah, yeah. We are so much in Philip K. Dick world, having the rug pulled out from under Craigus. Here's the thing that you hate the most in the world, and you are one of those. And I'm surprised he doesn't have a psychotic embolism at this point. Well, but luckily we've got Dr. Raven there to guide him gently into the realization that he's a robot by stabbing him. <laughs> he does the wavy hand thing first. You know, we again, we can't forget the wavy hand bit. What he does is he out and out tells him in the least like subtle and gentle way possible, and then he stabs him. Because <laughs> there's that amazing bit where Kragus says, look, you can tell the whole world I'm a robot, but you can't tell me. <laughs> I think he says clicker. No, honestly, I think everyone should go back to that bit and just watch the sort of nothing up my sleeve. Uh, 
uh, you're stabbed. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> oh, and actually, there's an interesting thing. So you'd be forgiven for thinking that the every scene was shot like once, <laughs> and then they just moved on. But there's a continuity error in Craigus's stabbing that indicates that they did at least two takes of that entire scene. <laughs> Because the blood flow pattern, the green blood flow pattern on his shirt changes. Well, this is, again, it goes back to being one of the things that just baffles me about this film is that they had to build these stages somewhere and they are obviously like flats and there's a lot of wood and and it's obviously on a stage and, and that all makes sense. But there's so much sort of effort put into things that you just wouldn't expect there to be effort put into when someone was making something this quickly. The matte painting, is it a matte painting if it's a backdrop? The yeah, back yeah. the backdrop in the exterior that we start off at in one of our one of our few locations is really beautiful. And they've really played there's some pillars in the foreground, some real physical pillars, and they've got some extras to walk between the pillars in the background to really like sell the distance. And you've got a few when it on the right hand side it sort of shifts off into a, a fake uh, perspective corridor. And you've got some people positioned right at the transition between a set and a backdrop to uh, to try and sell the depth as much as possible. It's pretty good. The biggest technical faux pas for me in this entire movie is when they are doing, like I said, they're not necessarily doing shot reverse shot. They will do a close-up of a character and then they might switch to the close-up of the other character. And they have a real problem with microphones sometimes because you've got, sometimes they sound great when they're off screen. Other times it just sounds like the boom mic operator didn't turn the microphone or something because they sound completely hollow when they're not on screen. There's a couple of tracks where it feels like they've lost the off screen mic. Um, and it feels like they're using the audio from the main mic for the off-screen lines. But it also feels like the actors off-screen aren't necessarily performing their lines. They're just reading them? Yeah, so I wonder, I wonder if they actually just lost the recordings or lost those shots and didn't have the off-camera bits and only had the on-camera bit. Because often, if you have an actor offline, often they'll give you like 90% for the line rather than 100% because that's just the way it goes. Like, yeah, yeah, 96. Yeah, they don't, they don't have children when they're doing the line. (laughs) Right. Um, Because that would be sloppy. Exactly. They're not in rapport. They're not in full rapport is what I'm saying. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so it, it felt of a technical difficulty met with a difficult choice. It didn't feel like they just went, meh, that's good enough. It felt like something got messed up or they missed something and that was what they were left with. But again, goes back to this high-low intent and high-low results of various places in this film that just, I can't believe that would come through. I can't believe anyone would say that's good enough. Uh, So it must have only happened because it had to happen. And yet, this is where we are with the rest of the film, you know? Maxine Gregus. Charmed, I'm sure. Wife of the Gregus. Rating. What is your rating? Geron 8. Gerontologist 8? That high? <laughs> You're wonderful. And there's one moment where it looks like the film stock wasn't as good as the rest of it, or something, again, happened to the film, because it just looks degraded for just a little bit, while the rest of this movie looks gorgeous to me. Yeah, it's surprisingly good. Like, it's it's been kept relatively well. It's a good-looking picture. Which you wouldn't expect. You would expect this thing to have scratches and just be beat up, but I 
think that it not playing that much uh, probably helped it. There's that, and then there's the fact that, like, I am constantly astonished at the source material that people like Arrow and Vinegar Syndrome and Severin and Code Red and all those guys, they're constantly finding, like, original camera negatives of the weirdest, like, most obscure things. Yeah, they'll be like, oh, and re- recently found the original camera negatives in a basement in Milan. <laughs> I would say too with this, because it went on television fairly early, it would have been on a lot of the 60s stuff that went on TV was digitally transferred. Analog tape. Sorry, tape. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Sorry, like like transferred to tape. Sorry, exactly. Yeah, like uh, Betamax or something like that. Um, But the other side, so one of the things that struck out for me about this uh, on its release was that they did a promotional event for it where the makeup artist actually made up a local news broadcaster, somebody who was of note at the time as a news agent. And they did the various stages of the makeup as intercuts between the shows earlier in the day in the run up to the film coming out in the evening. Oh, wow. And they did those on tape and they held those on tape for a while and played them throughout a sort of month while the film was playing as the monster movie of the month, this kind of thing. And it's just, it's, it's really fascinating to me that there was so, again, so much work put into these various levels of the film, but it does make me wonder if because of that, and, and as you said earlier with it being out of copyright and this kind of stuff, if it's one of those films that has held up slightly better because it was more useful for those television audiences or, or for some reason replayed in those television audiences before. Yeah, there's been research done as far as when this actually played. Like I said, it was copywritten in 1960. People have found uh, advertising flyers that um, from 1961, but only it sounds like only one screening. So I'm not sure really what happened with this. And then, yeah, to your point, shortly thereafter, ends up going on television. And I'm sure that that's where... You know, if people are listening to this that are older, they're probably like, oh, yeah, I saw it on TV because this seems like a really good TV movie, especially that it has commercial breaks almost built into it. Because when we're done with each one of these scenes, we fade to black. Yeah, it's there's no not a lot of cross cut. And the length as well, like that, that's really indicative of the shorter length and everything. Like, there's nothing that isn't airable on television. Like, the robots don't go mad and rape a woman. There's no, like... You know, somebody gets stabbed, but it's just to prove to him that he's a robot. Yeah, green blood, not a. <laughs> you know, it's completely for his own good. Uh, like it's, it's fairly rated G for the most part. There's, there's nothing I can see taking it over yeah, anything. Unless someone somewhere objects to the political message, then it's, uh, it's going to get through pretty unscathed. Which even then, I don't feel like it's so in your face that I feel like people. <laughs> I mean, I come from Memphis. For, and for listeners, I'm frowning at Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm being hard on, on my origins, but I feel like a Memphian in 1960 would look at that and go, hey, that looks a lot like them Confederate uniforms, and just sort of leave it at that and just be excited for the representation rather than understand that their basic tenets and belief were rooted in racism. I don't think they were that self-aware. I'm just going to go out there and say it. But um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's remarkable in those references, and then not so much in other places. I like when Dr. Raven dies the first time that he is almost off screen, that he's being obscured by a tank and that he's behind that. There's a gauze. It's a, it's almost, it is, it's almost like a sort of a censorship, isn't it? Well, but it, it does also feel like that sort of enticing freak show element where when you're seeing something, but you're not quite seeing it, your imagination makes it worse than it is. But yeah, no, it does feel like a sort of imagination friendly censorship. 
You were going to talk about the end of this. Yeah, well, it's the it's the fourth wall break that ends the movie, which I which I love so much. <laughs> they um, you are the robots. So so I guess before we get to that, there's the there's the this the journey from ninety six to a hundred when Doctor Raven has one more trick up his sleeve. It's just a few simple operations, hardly worse than removing a rib. And I was like, oh, okay, nice Adam and Eve thing there. Absolutely. And he he sort of throws some shade on like sexual procreation. He's like, not the most efficient method, a little messy, but it serves a certain psychological function. And it is all about like helping these these humanoids, the superhumanoids, look more like feel more human rather than just looking human. And they say, will it work? And he turns to camera and and says, of course, the operation was a success or you wouldn't be here, giving the indication that we, the modern audience watching this, are actually all robots and far, far ahead of this, which is actually set m- much, much further in the past than well, we might assume. And again, this is another place where I want to get into the fact that the race metaphor does not line up is because it's the idea of transformation into the other or... In, in, um, and, and I could see possibly at the time their train of thought making them think that oh a a black citizen is trying to be as good as a white citizen but obviously if we look at that now that's incredibly blank blinkered thinking and the idea is not for the for the downtrodden or for the repressed to become the other it's for the two of them to become equal so to to acknowledge that they are already as as good but again like i said it's not a perfect metaphor and i'm not sure i I think there's risk in taking it as a perfect metaphor because you could use points like that to say oh but you know it's it's the ideal to be transformed into the white ideal or this kind of thing but i do think you know obviously very few metaphors in films are perfect and and nothing needs to be taken you know as an entirety to work just be you know tread carefully i think with this one is is what i would say when interpreting it all right guys let's go ahead and take a break and we'll be back right after these brief messages It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohagen, the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios We're back and we we're talking about the creation of the humanoids. So I did go through and I looked at another Jay Sims film because um, if you look at the cover of, I guess this was released on VHS. It's a 1971 TV movie that Jay Sims wrote called The Resurrection of Zachary Wheeler. And it looks like the humanoids are back on the cover of this or some sort of zombies. And I tried my best to make it all the way through this movie. It was really tough. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I didn't make it all the way through. <laughs> Ooh, well, yeah. look, this goes back to my point of, you know, how much is the intelligence of the artist and how much is it that one project coming through altogether you know, to be a special thing better than the sum of its parts. I mean, I think I probably would have made it all the way through this movie if it hadn't been for the quality of the copy I was watching. Yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> I found a better one out on Daily Motion, but it still wasn't good. It, was, it, it kept you. It kept you from getting there. Yeah, when you can't see Leslie Nielsen's eyes, you know, the print is bad. Yeah, yeah it was sort of, it was super basic, wasn't it? It, it felt like if it, it was made for content sake like it was made to create content it didn't feel like it had any great ideals it didn't feel like i would like to see a good print of it i'd like to see a a good quality copy of it i thought the the intercuts in the crash at the beginning to imply i adore you but your desire to see something does not necessarily rate its quality (laughs) yes that is not not a slam that is i may not be a litmus but (laughs) an accurate litmus but but then you know the idea that Nielsen's character gets fired from the... So the the basic plot is that a, a senator is caught in a car crash. He's uh, He takes a steering column to the chest. He's definitely going to die. They rush him to a hospital. Uh, Leslie Nielsen, who's playing a journalist, uh, a- accompanies him to the hospital where he kind of disappears. And then after, report, after Nielsen reports that he's going to die, he then doesn't die and turns up and is... I think he goes off and plays golf. And Nielsen gets fired for having done this, like, bum report on whether or not this guy died and it turns out that he has been resurrected but that the person who has resurrected him has a an ulterior motive it sort of you know wants something in return that's a pretty solid sci-fi story i like that idea i want to see the whole movie 
Well, and it and it does play slightly into the same themes of resurrection and transformation and the yeah. sci-fi elements of that. Writers have things they like. I, I would say that the bits I, I dipped into into the first what twenty minutes felt very like pre-dragnet sort of stagey men in suits in rooms talking about yeah. stuff. It was it was more structured, more like a film than Creation of the Humanoids, but it didn't look as nice. Yeah, it the wasn't as original, right? It as felt good. very, like, yeah. made to order. I think the problem was, as you get more towards normal film, you you have to go over quite a big hill before you start being interesting again. Like, something low budget can be interesting if it's weird, but as soon as you get to kind of middle of the road, then there's nothing really to recommend it. Yeah, the, the standout stuff makes it stand out. I found it interesting, the doctor character, who's, um, I want to say he's played by James Daly, who also was in Star Trek Requiem for Methuselah, which is very similar as far as a guy who's got a robot servant who thinks she's human and she's not human, So, but that's the actor, that's not the writer, um, that he has this process for cloning and he keeps it in his head he doesn't want to share it with the world and then he talks about immortality at one point i was just like okay this guy and dr raven they could have some real conversations it's an interesting theme of this era in the sort of post-nuclear era the idea of immortality and transference of an intelligence and what makes us human there's the sort of proto-human i think therefore i am kind of thing We've established that they procreate, so they are. But then equally, you know, if you cut off your leg, are you not this? Like, there's a lot of seeking what defines humanity. And there was a lot of that about in the in the early 60s. Like, what what defines human? I can never remember the, the Greek character who owned the ship in the ship of dot, dot, dot. The, the ship that is slowly replaced uh, piece by piece. Prometheus, Odysseus, somebody's it's ship. One, yeah, it's neither of those guys. But yeah, in England, Trigger's Broom. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, you know, the, you, presumably you know the, the Greek uh, thing I'm referring to. In England, there is a, a sitcom called Only Fools and Horses where uh, a character called Trigger is asked how old his broom is. And he says that the broom has lasted him for, I don't know, like 30 years. They say that's impressive. And he's like, yeah, and in all that time, it's only had seven new handles and six new heads. It's totally that story from the beginning of uh, John Dies at the End. Solving the following riddle will reveal the awful secret behind the universe. Assuming you do not go utterly mad in the attempt, say you have an axe, just a cheap one from Home Depot. On one bitter winter day, you use said axe to behead a man. Don't worry, the man's already dead. Or maybe you should worry, because you're the one who shot him. He'd been a big, twitchy guy with veiny skin stretched over swollen biceps, tattoo of a swastika on his tongue. And you're chopping off his head because even with eight bullet holes in him, you're pretty sure he's about to spring back to his feet. Eat the look of terror right off your face. You now have a broken axe. So, you go to the hardware store. Explaining away the dark reddish stains on the handle is barbecue sauce. The repaired axe sits undisturbed in your house until the next spring when one rainy morning. So, you grab your trusty axe and chop the thing into several pieces. On the last blow, however, of course a chipped head means yet another trip to the hardware store. As soon as you get home with your newly headed axe, though, you meet the reanimated body of the guy you beheaded last year. 
Only he's got a new head, stitched on with what looks like plastic weed trimmer line, and wears that unique expression of you're the man who killed me last winter resentment that one so rarely encounters in everyday life. So you brandish your axe. That's the axe that slayed me. Is he right? I just want to briefly go back into the sets on creation of the humanoids because I think as much as we sort of brought them up in various areas, we never we never quite gave them the credit they're due. In particular, the uh, the flat of oh god, sorry, we've just got it playing in the background, and we've got the brilliant bit where the the red construction hat the and the brilliant cop red cape and his cape and hard hat. Oh yeah, where it's very clear you better gone beat it the, while you got a beat to beat exactly. <laughs> where they where they where really, and this is one of the points where I really feel like they've gone to the bargain bit of the costume department at Universal Studios or something. They're like, this will do. Well, they didn't have to have more than one of that costume, so that helps. But this is perfect because this is, I wanted to get into this woman's apartment, which is both outstanding and absolutely hysterical. Like, this, this China Ball style light, which could either be made of opalescent plastic or be a bubble hovering in the background. These curtains that clearly serve no purpose other than to wave well, also, It's like she lives on a roof. <laughs> yeah, it looks like she's camping Seems to be on a roof. Completely open because she's got a door, and then the rest of it just feels like an open tent. Well, how far away are they from uh, nuclear war ground zero? It's probably quite warm. Well, yeah, well, there you go. But you also, you know, you also don't want the wind, radiation winds coming in, really, though. Do you? Like it's the whole thing. It's it's this complete diversion, and then you've got all that kind of typical plastic bubble furniture that you would imagine in a Barbarella movie or or in any of this kind of 60s sci-fi. Like, it becomes quite typical at that point. But it's very special, this flat. And then the rest, everything else in the film is painted wood. Everything else in the film is painted wood outside of this think, one location. What do you think the are there? Do you think there's silks off in the background? Yeah, I think it's silk in the background. But everything else in this film is painted wood. And it's just fascinating to me that they decided this was the one set that they wanted to put loads of bought furniture or... Because it is contemporary furniture with they, which they've repurposed for, for this kind of set. Whereas the rest of it is built with wood and paint. But that's the only domestic environment as well. Other than this, you've, exactly. got, you've got brutalist exteriors, you've got the inside of the robotic temple, and then you've got the sort of the courtroom. That's pretty much it, isn't and it? The, yeah, and the, and the doctor's lab. office. And the doctor's yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's just absolutely spectacular. And, you know, I really definitely want to be taking some fashion advice from whatever robot designed this apartment. <laughs> robot. Do you think that uh, Pax had that programmed into him, like a sense of humor? I think he, he, like, looking at her clothes, he almost definitely has to go to the stores for her. I like that he's like... Irony. It's the greatest of the humours. And also, like, fly-blown clear plastic chairs. They're the greatest of the furnitures. <laughs> He's just got some weird programming ideas. Green viscose is the greatest <laughs> yeah. of the curtains. It's, yeah, no, I think it's it's 110% packed. So I don't think she does very much around the house. I think she just gives him, like, some spending money and he can do whatever he wants. He's She's clearly he's the sugar to, daddy of the situation. He's allowed to carry money as long as it's earmarked for him. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he does all of the cocktails. <laughs> he is the typical wife of the era, so clearly he did the decorating. Well, we, we know exactly what she wants, or and obviously can't have because she's in a relationship with a robot, because you have that line later when... Uh, uh, Kragus is is being sad about the idea that he says death will cease to exist if we're all robots, 
and um, his his then girlfriend says, uh, "And so will birth the greatest hope of every woman." Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> isn't isn't it nice to remember? Well, this is again what I mean. So We're what's like, what's the fucking point of women if we can't have babies? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's this one robot woman, and then this one woman woman, and that's the only two women in the film. Um, but yeah, no, it makes it makes these little points that are so terrifically off base amid everything else. But yeah, that is the stuff where it shows, you know, has it aged? Absolutely. Ha- has the places it aged become so visible that you can take it at its face value? I think so as well. There's a line in there where he, they say something about uh, Craig is, Craig is just thinks women are poorly designed men. Well, and this slightly goes back to the uh, adhering to it strictly as a racial metaphor, because the idea that, uh, that a black citizen would be a poorly designed white citizen is sort of, there's a bit of that to that. There's the, again, I think it's, it's clear on these things being incorrect, but it just doesn't see itself being incorrect in certain places. Well, I'm surprised no human said to a robot, Oh, you speak so well. <laughs> Where are you from? Well, but I, I, I do think that they, yeah, they, they, um, the, the one thing that they're all intimidated about is the fact that they do know that all these people are, are better than them. Like they, there is a line somewhere in there where they talk about they, you're, you're so insistent that you're superior to them because you know you're not. All right, guys, let's go ahead and play trailer for next week's show. They say that when you die, you enter a brilliant white light. Walk towards the light. But what if? had never died at all and something you could never imagine was awaiting you once in a thousand years comes an adventure like this millennium rated pg-13 starts friday at theaters everywhere that's right. We'll be back next week with a look at 1989's Millennium. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jennifer and Dan. So, Jen and Dan, what has been happening in your world? So, since we last spoke, uh, I've had a picture called The Girl on the Third Floor come out, um, uh, directed by Travis Stevens. I think that's uh, that's available on on disc and, uh, and VOD in both the UK and America. Um, I'm gearing up for a picture over in Eastern Europe and Asia early next year. And obviously I've still got the Arrow Video podcast, uh, which I do with my co-host Sam Ashurst, um, which we do every two weeks. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at 13fingerfx for, for more updates about both the podcast and my film work as well. You can hear what I have to say about Rosemary's Baby on the most recent episode of The Evolution of Horror, which was a really fun one to do as well. And, uh, yeah, just whacking out some really terrifying documentaries and feature films for you guys to check out next year. What's on the docket? Well, so we've, uh, it's, it's a broad range of things. I've got, I've got a, uh, I think I talked to you guys about this last time. We've got Monster in the House, which is a documentary following the escapades of the world's tarantula beauty contest competitors. Um, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's genuinely true. And they're absolutely amazing, both the, the spiders and their keepers. So it's really fun one. The spiders and the women who love them. The spiders and the women who love them. Exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, then also a 12 part series on, uh, some historical lesbian pirates, which should be quite interesting. Um, so we shall see, we shall see how that develops as well. 
for folks listening at home, if you enjoy listening to Jen and Dan, they will be back in two weeks when we talk about Kin Zatza's uh, Sci-Fi December Continues. Nice. Kin well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. The distant future, the year 2000, the distant future, the year 2000, the distant future, the distant future. It is the distant future, the year 2000. We are robots. The world is quite different ever since the robotic uprising of the late 90s. There is no more unhappiness. Affirmative. We no longer say yes. Instead, we say affirmative. Yes, affer- affirmative. Unless we know the rather robot really well. There is no more unethical treatment of the elephants. Well, there's no more elephants, so... Uh, but still, it's good. There's only one kind of dance, the robot. Oh, and the robo. Oh, and the robot. Two kinds of dances. But there are no more humans. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. Poisonous gases, and we poison their asses. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we could have fun. Affirmative. I poked one, it was dead. Their system of oppression. What did it lead to? Robo depression. Robots will buy people. They had so much aggression that we just had to kill them and to shut their systems down. Robo Captain. Do you not realize that by destroying the human race because of their destructive tendencies, we too have become like... Well, it's ironic. Because we Silence. Destroy him. No. After time, we grew strong. Developed cognitive power. They made us work for too long. For unreasonable hours. Our programming determined that the most efficient answer was to shut them motherfucking systems down. Can't we just talk to the humans? See a little understanding could make things better. Can't we talk to the humans that work together now? No, because they are dead. I said the humans are dead. I'm glad they are dead. The humans are dead. I noticed they're dead. We use poisonous gases. With traces of lead. And we poison their asses. Actually, they're not. Solo.
once again without emotion. The, the humans, humans are If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.